Welcome back to the Warts and All podcast. I'm Susie Edge, medical doctor and historian, and I'm just fascinated by how we've treated the human body in life and in death, but let's face it, mostly in death. I just love telling these stories, and I'm glad you're here with me. If you follow me on TikTok, you might have seen that last week I had a terrible headache. We had to wait a bit for this one. But that's the nature of life. We're ready to go again. Thanks for waiting. Coming up on this week's podcast, we're going to talk about some good old British executions. I'm going to keep it British because, frankly, we could make a whole series, a whole podcast genre about executions all over the world and go way, way back in history. And we can talk about the here and now, but we have to draw a line somewhere. So, hanging, beheading, drawing, quartering, pressing, burning, it's all coming up. This is episode eight. A good old British execution. I had a request to talk about Mary Queen of Scots, so yeah, she's in there too. First of all, a bit of mail. I had a lovely message review a wee while ago, quite a while ago actually, from my friend Dan. We had a brief chat about earls and counts, and he's been reading about the White Ship disaster, where a few hundred English nobles drowned in the Channel, uh, including Henry VIII's son and heir to the throne in 1120. Seriously, Henry VIII? Like, I keep saying I'm not obsessed with the Tudors, but (laughs) there he was. Unconsciously, he popped up. Bit Freudian there. Anyway, I meant Henry I. I talked about that nasty incident back in the death of Henry I episode. Anyway, thanks, Dan. You can check out his amazing sugar-free bakery, Deliciously Guilt-Free. Some of you might know that, ironically, in another part of my day, I'm super interested in actually staying alive, keeping myself out of the coffin. Ideas around nutrition and longevity and health are really important to me. As part of that, I keep my diet sugar, seed oil free. And I had some of Dan's cakes recently. They were amazing. This is not a sponsorship at all. Just a massive love and appreciation for what Dan does at Deliciously Guilt-Free. Incidentally, Dan's wife Basma has also been helping me with my writing discipline lately, so it's a family affair. (laughs) Thanks, guys. I also have a massive thank you to make to my patrons over on Patreon because it blows me away. I'm massively grateful for the support I get on there. Diane Culpepper and Cara Schnaus, Black Belt patrons. Um, As I said, I'm massively grateful. It means so much to me. It makes me, it drives me on and it helps to get things, um, get things done every day when I see your names come up. And um, yeah, so behind the scenes, bit of fun chat uh, I will send out on Patreon to those who support me on there. Thank you again. Big thanks also to uh, Natalie Fitzgerald and Jennifer Wilcox and patrons that have been with me for a wee while. Um, yeah, thanks guys. Do you know what? I need to say, these podcasts are just my thoughts and musings. If there's anything you strongly disagree with, then do let me know. We can chat about it. Uh, But do remember, this is not a PhD thesis. This is not a PhD thesis defence. Please remember, we are just here having fun. So please just have some fun with us. Right, off with some heads. So many towns and villages throughout Britain have areas named after the sinister goings-on of times past. Gallowgate, Gallows Hill, Gallows Road. Whenever I see a sign that names a street or area Gallows, it makes me shudder a little bit. 
They're all a hat tip to a part of the town which was designated for capital punishment, and it was most likely hanging, because despite Tudor tales of beheadings being everywhere, for us commoners, hanging was most, well, common. There were even stories of gallow trees, like the one in Braemar in Scotland in the hamlet of Inverai. The story goes that back in the 16th century, a man named Lament from Inverai was hanged by members of the Farquharson clan. There had been a long-running family feud, and the Farquharsons accused him of stealing sheep. As stealing a sheep was a big deal, and was punishable by death. As Lamont was hanging there from the tree, his poor mother came forward. She faced the Farquharsons responsible, and she cursed the family, prophesying that the tree her son was hanged upon would still be there, long after there were no Farquharsons left on Deeside. The prophecy came true. The male line of the Invercold Farquharsons failed in the year 1805, and the tree was still alive in the 1900s. It's dead now, but it's still there, held up by wires, and it's a bit of a tourist attraction, as a reminder of how we might dispatch those found guilty of stealing sheep or being from a rival family. <laughs> we still tell these stories years later. It's part of our makeup to talk about and be fascinated by these things. So I've found whenever I make a TikTok video about anyone being executed, they're popular. And not just in a creepy voyeurism kind of way. Many of the comments are thoughtful, soul-searching, and so it's interesting to hear people mull over such grisly goings-on. Here in the UK, these ideas are consigned to history videos and podcasts, but don't get me wrong, I'm well aware that these things go on throughout the world today. My eyes are not closed to that. Back to the past, though. For common people, a sentence of death most likely involved hanging. Not too long ago, hanging was not quite the quick and easy, instant, neck-snapping death it's often thought to be. Hanging was a long, drawn-out asphyxiation and could take quite a while. Those sentences would literally hang on the end of a rope for a good while, hanging from a tree or scaffold. It wasn't unknown for family members to go and tug at the legs of their loved ones in mercy to speed up the process. The process would be a slow reduction in the oxygen getting to the organs that need it. Not until that happened to the brain would unconsciousness come along and end the suffering. Humans are obligate aerobes. We need oxygen to sustain our consciousness and our lives. Cut off the supply of oxygen getting to the lungs by constricting the trachea within the neck and it won't be long before the brain is crying out for much needed oxygen. Without oxygen our cells will die and we will die along with them. A sentence of hanging on the end of the rope was a double whammy because the oxygen can't get to the lungs, the CO2 can't get out of the lungs and the blood can't get to the brain if you're constricting the big vessels that take it up there. Eventually, hangmen with the job of regular executions got to grips with the length of the rope and the drop needed for this to be a quicker death. But until then, one would have to slowly choke to death. There could still be problems. James Berry, or maybe Henry as I've seen him called, was a Yorkshire hangman who was remembered for being conscientious. He was literate, wrote about his work and left us insights. He wrote about an early one in his hangman career that went horribly wrong. A chap called Robert Goodale at Norwich was hanged in 1885 for killing his wife. Found at the bottom of a well with her skull broken, Gooday had killed her for alleged infidelity. Berry had allowed for the wrong drop for the condemned, and as he dropped, 
His head was ripped clean off his shoulders. Berry was also the hangman who failed to hang John Babacom Lee in 1885. The trap repeatedly failed. In fact, there were a good few stories of people who didn't die on the noose, as was intended. Sometimes it just didn't go to plan, and I love to recount the story of Maggie Dixon, or half it Maggie, of Edinburgh. On a September day in 1729, a crowd gathered at Edinburgh's grass market to witness the public execution of Maggie Dixon. She'd been found guilty of the murder of her infant child. You see, Maggie had concealed her pregnancy, and the father was not her estranged husband. It had all gone wrong for poor Maggie. When the time came, she claimed that the baby was stillborn. She took the baby's body down to the river to put it in, but she couldn't bring herself to do it. She left the baby on the riverbank, where its body was found and traced back to Maggie. There was an argument made that the baby must have been born alive and that she had killed it, so she was sentenced to hang. And she did hang, in public view. Her limp body was taken down, put into a coffin and carried away on a cart. As they travelled along, taking Maggie's body back to Musselburgh, where she had come from, they heard a knocking, because Maggie was alive. To hang from a rope and live was seen as God's forgiveness, so she was let go and lived on for another 40 years. She was forever known as half it Maggie. There's a pub in Edinburgh called Maggie Dixon's, and I made a promise in a video that when we can get there, I'll see you there for a pint, and I'll let you know if we get the chance, so maybe see you there. All of this talk of Edinburgh and hanging makes me really want to make a podcast about Burke and Hare, so it's definitely on the list. And thinking about Burke and Hare, or chiefly William Burke, makes me think, out of interest, in post-mortem punishments. Post-mortem punishments were handed out by judges who wanted to show the simple act of hanging the convicted wasn't enough. Hanging in chains at the gibbet and post-mortem dissection were also sentences that could be passed down by judges. Legislation in the time of Henry VIII said that four bodies each year should be supplied to anatomists for dissection. I think I'll just tease you with that one, though. I'll put together a podcast episode that involves all that good stuff. So back to hanging in chains, or gibbeting. In the 1700s, there were over 220 crimes that you could commit, or be accused of, that you could hang for. They had to differentiate between the stealing of bunny rabbits and murder, and so being kept hanging in chains after death seemed like a good way to do just that. It was debated about whether the punishment of death for murder should be more tortuous, or even to bring the culprit's family into it. Before the Murder Act of 1752, the punishment of hanging in chains was at the discretion of the judges. With the act, it became law. It was not just murderers who could end up hanging in chains, though. It was also used for highwaymen, robbers of the mail, and admiralty convictions such as murder at sea or piracy. Convicted highwaymen could be seen hanging in chains near where their crimes had been committed. The displaying of body parts in medieval and early modern periods were to do with crimes against the state or treason. Parts and heads were displayed up on city walls and gates as a warning to others. And popular culture sometimes portrays criminals as being hung in cages to die, but in most cases they were hung up already dead taken to conspicuous locations, usually near where the crimes were committed. People would even make a special trip to go and see them hanging there. Hanging, though, was a bit too undignified for those of a higher class, so they were dispatched by beheading. 
usually a nice sharp axe, but for others, like Amberlynn, a sword, or even our own guillotine. Like the one you can now see at the Museum of Scotland in Edinburgh called the Maiden, or there's a Halifax version. The Scottish Maiden just sits there now in a museum. It's quite dark and sinister. A frame of oak with a lead weight and a blade of iron. It was introduced in 1564, around the time of Mary Queen of Scots, and was still in use in 1715. It was said that the sword, which had been used for beheadings, was worn out, and at some point they had to pay for a loan of another sword to behead someone. So they didn't want that, so the maiden was created. It was built so that you could take it apart and move it about from beheading location to beheading location. The blade was weighted and was kept high by a peg until the executioner pulled a cord that removed the peg. If the condemned was guilty of stealing a horse, the cord was tied to the horse, who was then whipped into jumping away, and therefore the horse carried out the execution. That's wonderfully specific. When James VI was a lad, the regent James Douglas, 4th Earl of Morton, lost his head at the Blade of the Maiden. It's been written that he was the one responsible for the Maiden's introduction in Scotland, and that he had based it on the Halifax gibbet. The same was said of Dr Guillotine, that he went out the same way, though that wasn't the case. Over the years, the Maiden was used to dispatch a good 150 people, including a couple of Campbells in the 17th century who were involved in the execution of Charles I and later rebellion against his sons. There are no bloodstains left on the Maiden, though I, I checked for you. When it came to beheadings, the Maiden, the Halifax gibbet, the later guillotine were a lot cleaner than beheadings by axe and sword might have been. Margaret Pole's execution was one of the most brutal to happen in the Tower of London. The 67-year-old Countess of Salisbury was accused of treason and Catholic plot, charges she denied until the very end. On the 27th of May in 1541, she was led out to the block at a private execution, and there were a good 150 people there, so it wasn't that private. What they saw, they wouldn't forget. The main executioner was out of town, so the job was given to a young, inexperienced lad. His first blow of the axe hit her in the shoulder, and after that, blow after blow, he hacked her head and shoulders to pieces. It took more than ten blows to sever her head from her body. A later account thought that that story was not gruesome enough, and so had Margaret taunting the executioner, moving around, running away, being chased. Yeah, you know what, I would love to see her bones and CT scan them, but no, I don't believe they should be dug up just for our morbid curiosity. We can't talk about botched and bloody executions without the mention of Mary Queen of Scots. On a February day in 1587, Mary Queen of Scots, after a turbulent life, was led out to her dramatic death. Elizabeth I had been persuaded that Mary was a threat to her throne and had signed a death warrant. Now Mary faced the axe. Approaching the block, her cloaks were removed to reveal undergarments of red Catholic defiance. Hands up if you think this is going to be an easy execution. The first blow of the axe missed the spot. Another blow was needed, but still her head was attached by a thread to her shoulders. A third blow was needed. Her head then rolled away, lips still twitching. The executioner grabbed at it, but only managed to pull off the wig that she wore. Then, her headless body started to move. Her skirts were ruffling. What was happening? 
out from underneath came her little lapdog that had been there cowering beneath her skirt as Mary's life was taken. Mary's execution story was as legendary as her life. So we love a good execution story, and it seems that the more botched the better, you horrible lot. The execution of Charles I, though, that was a different matter. The executioner was an experienced chap, and he knew he had to get this right. He had a hack. As Charles I was led up to the execution block, he noticed that the block was really low, and he asked for it to be made higher, but was told no. Well, he wasn't in any position to make demands anymore. The executioner wasn't just putting the king in his place, he had a reason to say no. If the execution block was set really high, the condemned would have to flex their neck and the axe was more likely to come through and cut the face of the victim, thus rendering it all a rather messy episode. If the execution block was set too low, then the condemned would have to extend their neck, making it more likely that the executioner could carry out a clean blow. He knew all eyes were on him, and he had to get it right. For Anne Boleyn, there was the infamous Frenchman's sword. One blow. Beheadings were not just a way of dispatching the unwanted. They had a symbolism, and for onlookers there was a chance to see the guilty redeem themselves before God. Didn't always happen. They were so symbolic that they even carried out posthumously. Oliver Cromwell was dug up so he could have his head cut off 12 years after he played his part in the beheading of the king. You can listen to episode 5 about the crazy things that happened to Oliver Cromwell's head after that. The last woman in England to be publicly beheaded was Alice Lyle. She was said to have rejoiced at the killing of King Charles I and she paid for it with her own head. Her husband John had been one of the regicides who called for the killing of Charles I, so it's no surprise that the Stuarts were not fans of the family. Years later, after the restoration of the monarchy with Charles II, they still had to deal with revolt and dissent. After one battle at Sedgemoor, the rebels spread out across England, and Alice Lyle was accused of harbouring rebels, a non-conformist minister and a rebel lawyer. She said she had nothing to do with it, she didn't know what had been going on. She was the first to appear during the subsequent bloody assizes, and she came up against the infamous hanging Judge Jeffreys. She was sentenced to a burning to death. She managed to petition James II to have her sentence changed to beheading on account of her status, and he agreed. So at 71 years old, she stepped out of an upstairs pub window onto a scaffold erected just for her killing. From there, she used the opportunity to have a good go at her enemies. She did add in that she forgave them too, just in case. And she was the last woman to lose her head in England. We didn't just hang and behead people, though. There were other imaginative ways to end lives in spectacle. The death of Margaret Clitheroe in 1568 was another brutal tale. She was pressed to death. Pressing is a form of punishment that we don't really hear as much about. It was used as a punishment designed to get a plea out of anyone charged with an offence, but was keeping quiet. I'll have to press you for an answer. They would be held down and weights piled on top of them until they would give a plea or die in the process. Margaret Clitheroe had been charged with harbouring Catholic priests at her home in York in a time when they were outlawed in Protestant England. 
She chose to go to her death rather than face a trial in which her children could be implicated. So she was taken and stripped. She was held down and a stone the size of her wrist was placed beneath her spine so that it would snap when her own front door was placed on top of her and stones were piled on top of that. It took 15 minutes for her to die. Pressing was still going on in 1731 when a chap called Weeks was pressed under more than £400. He was suffering, but he wasn't dying. Onlookers came up and climbed on top to mercifully end his suffering sooner. Well, that was nice of them. We need to talk about hanging, drawing and quartering, don't we? In 1326, Hugh de Spencer the Younger, one-time favourite of the former king Edward II, was hanged, drawn and quartered for treason. In the spectacle of high drama, with Isabella and Mortimer looking on, eating their luncheon, Hugh was dragged behind horses to the spot of his execution, suspended by the neck for a while, but not until dead, not yet. He was then tied high up on a ladder. His genitals were cut off and thrown into the fire below. His intestines were slowly pulled out and then burned. Can't imagine that was a pleasant smell. His heart was then cut out. His body was cut into four and his head cut off, all to be put on display in exhibits as a warning to others. These acts were not just an exhibition for the death of young Hugh. These were specific parts of the punishment for treason. It's hard to imagine the mind of whomever dreamed up these punishments. They were not that common, though. You might get the impression if you watch my TikToks that these were everyday events. And because they happened to so many famous names, you might imagine they were regular event. But it wasn't so much, not compared to the hanging of everyday or common or garden criminals, thieves and murderers. There were others, though, famously William Wallace, though I can't imagine he would have been in any position to be shouting about freedom during the whole gory process. All of the rituals of hanging, drawing and quartering had a meaning to them. The sentence of Guy Fawkes takes the opportunity to explain the various parts of the spectacle for us. Guy Fawkes played a role in the crowd attempting to blow up James I, or James VI of Scotland, at the Houses of Parliament in 1605. For his part in the Catholic plot, he should have been hanged and drawn and quartered. And the sentence was quite specific. He was to be drawn to the place of execution from his prison as being not worthy any more to tread upon the face of the earth whereof he was made. So they would drag him as he wasn't worthy to walk on the same earth as everybody else. He must be drawn with his head declining downward and lying so near the ground as he may be, being though unfit to take benefit of the common air. So they would drag him with his face against the ground because he wasn't worthy of breathing the same air as everybody else. It went on to say, For which cause also he shall be strangled, being hanged up by the neck between heaven and earth, as deemed unworthy of both or either. So that meant that if they were going to hang him, he wasn't on the ground and he wasn't in heaven. He wasn't worthy of being in either of those places. It then said, He is to be cut down alive and to have his privy parts cut off and burnt before his face, as being unworthily begotten and unfit to leave any generation after him. Meaning, uh, they cut off his private parts because he wasn't worthy to produce any heirs. 
His bowels and inlaid parts taken out and burnt, who inwardly had conceived and harboured in his heart such horrible treason. So they were saying they were going to cut out his insides and his heart because that's where the treasonous convictions were, were held within him. After to have his head cut off, which had imagined the mischief. So they cut off his head because that was where the whole idea was thought up. And lastly, his body be quartered and the quarters be set up in some high and eminent place to the view and detestation of men and to become prey for fowls of the air. So cut him up into bits so everyone can share in the spectacle and be warned. It's pretty specific, wasn't it? There were reasons for all these different parts of it. As it happened, though, in the end, Guy Fawkes did not finish up as the writer of the sentence had imagined. With the noose around his neck, Fawkes took his chance for a quicker way out. He jumped from the scaffold and killed himself before all this could happen. You might not know it if you're somewhere else in the world, uh, as many of my followers are, but every year on the 5th of November, we light bonfires and burn effigies of Guy Fawkes on top to, you know, celebrate the burning of Catholics, as you do. Come to think of it, for many years, I thought that had been Guy Fawkes' punishment, that he'd been burned at the stake, and that's what the bonfires with Guy Fawkes' effigies were talking about. But bonfire bit refers to them trying to blow up Parliament and the King, rather than the burning of Guy Fawkes. That's coming up soon, it's a few weeks away for us. I doubt there'll be many though, because we're still worried about spreading Covid. Speaking of burning at the stake, we've done our fair bit of that too over the years. Heresy was the main reason, and Catholic or Protestant, witch or just plain annoying, you could have suffered being burned at the stake. That's tied to a wooden stake and had nothing to do with the lovely, meaty, sizzling beef steak, uh, as my daughter once believed. She never really understood why that was a punishment. We associate the punishment of burning to death with Bloody Mary, the Queen attempting to restore Catholicism. And she had quite a few bonfires built in her time. But when it came to Catholics and Protestant, it happened in both directions. They were as bad as each other. But most deaths by burning were not quite what they seemed. It was common for the executioner to help the process along by quietly cutting the throat of the condemned before lighting the fire below them. Not always, though. To be honest, this is my line. I think of this whenever I get asked the inevitable question, is there anything gory and gruesome that you don't like to talk about? Well, maybe this is it. The physiology is really interesting to think through, but not today. Burning for heresy was abolished in 1677, and I, for one, am grateful for that. We've had a fascination over the years for executions. First we flocked to see them, now we make podcasts about them. In the 1900s it was started to be understood how these executions could affect those who were tasked with carrying out the job. Women prison officers were no longer expected to attend executions of women. Albert Pierpont, hangman in 1932 to 1956, wrote that none of the officers even believed that any of the executions they carried out prevented a single murder, and the mood around an execution was always a grim one. Makes you wonder if that was the case a few hundred years ago, or if that's just a reflection of changes in our attitude. Thank you for listening to the Warts and All podcast. I'm loving the responses to my standalone chats and also to the first Watson All History Club we had with Melissa Ratliff last week. 
If you would like to support the Mortal Monarchs book, the podcast, the ongoing content creation, all for fun and no drama, please do so at patreon.com slash Edge. You can find me on TikTok at Susie Edge and on Twitter at Susie Edge. And on my website, there's links to all my stuff, merch, etc. at susieedge.com. Next week, we're going to have another Warts and All History Club. I had an amazing chat with Sonia Alves, who is a professional genealogist. Loved that chat. That's going to come out next week, so keep an eye out for that. This has been the Warts and All podcast, written and produced by me, graphics by Catherine Edge. See you all soon, if you can keep yourself from the gallows.